Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This is a crowd podcast. Ayrton Senna made cars dance. While others were wrestling a thousand pounds of brute engineering, Senna was off doing art. One rival said he made cars move like raindrops on a pavement. So good, he made us all poets. But there didn't seem to be anything poetic about Senna's death. There usually isn't in motor racing. Senna's car hit a concrete wall too fast, and that was pretty much it. But people couldn't help wondering about Senna's last thought. Was he angry the concrete wall hadn't moved aside to let him through? That's a pretty dark joke. The point being, Senna expected everyone and everything to spot his yellow helmet and give way. That was his right. Senna wasn't just the greatest racing driver who ever lived, he was more than that. And that's what we're going to talk about. How did this rich kid become a folk hero in a country where rich often meant corrupt? Why the fury which made him want to annihilate rivals, which made him do things other drivers couldn't do? Was Senna as selfish as people think he was? And why has there been no one like Senna since? A racing driver who inspires beautiful words. When Senna complained that nothing had come easy, which he often did, journalists sighed. They knew Senna had grown up lucky. While millions of Brazilians were living in poverty, Senna was surrounded by wealth and love. His dad owned factories and ranches with 10,000 cattle, but he still found time to build Senna a go-kart when he was just four. Senna's driving a Jeep at seven. When the clutch wears out, he can change gears anyway. When he starts racing carts, he gets his own engineer, but Senna is soon making his own tweaks. Like a lot of so-called naturals, 
He's actually a child obsessive, a bit of a geek. He spends hours in workshops tinkering away, asking himself one question. How can I make this go faster? In 1972, Emerson Fittipaldi becomes the first Brazilian to win the Formula One World Championship. Like Senna, Fittipaldi is from Sao Paulo. It opens up a world of possibilities. Aged 13, Senna starts his first kart race on pole position and is soon untouchable on the tracks of South America. In 1978, he heads to Europe, where he twice finishes second in the Karting World Championships. Senna quits college and moves to England with his wife. The way he sees it, he doesn't have a choice. Driving in Formula Ford, a few rungs down from Formula One, he's soon winning races, easily too. Then there are scuffles in paddocks and accusations of dangerous driving. Senna thinks people are getting in his way. His rivals think he's a hooligan and maybe a genius. When it's wet, most drivers are happy to take their foot off the gas and race another day. It's not cowardice, it's common sense. But that's when Senna and his car get really intimate. It's all about the touch the delicacy, like driving that battered old Jeep with no clutch or playing three instruments at once, the steering, the throttle, the brake, outside in a storm while blindfolded. Senna's marriage doesn't last long. I was his second passion, his ex-wife would say. And after winning everything there is to win in Formula Ford, he storms Formula 3. Not that he makes many friends along the way. Off the track, Senna is quiet, aloof, something arrogant. On the track, he's ruthless. Motor racing has etiquette, and Senna doesn't stick to it. He overtakes where he's not supposed to, barges people out the way, swerves in front of people. It appears he can't accept finishing second. That's what another driver says. Rivals soon learn that when they see Senna's yellow helmet in the mirrors, it's best to make room. He's going to go for the pass anyway, and that's what gives him the edge. While others have second thoughts, Senna has none. In 1984, Senna makes the step up to Formula One. The big teams are tempted, but he ends up signing for a small British team called Tolman. Tolman don't have great cars, but they're willing to take a punt on a kid with promise. Senna's first Grand Prix is back home in Rio, where he qualifies on the eighth row and retires after eight laps. He picks up points in his second and third races before his car starts playing up again. Then comes the rain in Monaco. Time to dance. Time to get intimate to declare his genius on the biggest stage. Senna qualifies well down the field, but tears through the streets of Monte Carlo like a man possessed. Later, we'd learn just how possessed he is. Senna manages to avoid the accidents happening all over the circuit and is breathing down the leader's neck 
after 31 laps. When the race is pulled off, the winner's name is Alain Prost, who soon takes Senna's intensity to a whole new level. In 1985, Senna wins his first Grand Prix in Portugal, driving for Lotus. In pouring rain, he finishes a minute ahead of the field and laps all but one rival. He also wins in Belgium, and it looks like his ego is already out of control. The Lotus plan is to pair him with a driver with ambitions of his own, but Senna puts his foot down. As far as he's concerned, the team should be all about him. Senna's the complete package. Fast as hell, aggressive, immaculate technique, a wizard mechanic, and shrewd as anything. This is what Nicky Lauda says, and he's already won three world titles. Senna's the greatest talent to emerge in recent years. And not just that driving the car, he simply knows what's going on. By the 1986 season, Senna's obviously the quickest driver in Formula One. The number of pole positions he's gotten shows that. But on race days, his car keeps letting him down. The following year, frustrations boil over. In Belgium, he pushes Nigel Mansell off the track. Afterwards, Mansell storms into the pits and grabs him by the throat. After spinning out in Mexico, Senna punches a marshal. Senna knows there's no one better than him, but he's not deluded. He also knows he needs the best equipment to show exactly how good he is. So Senna joins McLaren, home to two-time world champion Prost. Prost is all for it, thinks it will be best for the team. He should know better. Prost first met Senna four years earlier, when they both took part in a celebrity saloon car race. It was meant to be a bit of fun, but not for Senna. Never for Senna. He pushed Prost off the track after half a lap and went on to win. When Prost invites his new teammate round for lunch, Senna falls asleep on his sofa for two hours Prost thinks Senna is weird, but he tolerates him for the good of the team. Up until the Portuguese Grand Prix, where Senna swerves in front of Prost at 190 miles an hour, he almost hits the pit wall. If he wants the championship that badly, he can have it, says Prost. Senna wraps his first world title up in Japan. As he crosses the finish line, he shakes his fists and looks up to the sky. After the race, he claims he saw God, calmly, almost as if he expected it, as if seeing God is totally normal. Senna often spoke about driving a racing car in spiritual terms, of his qualifying performance in Monaco, where he went almost a second and a half faster than Prost. Senna said, I was no longer driving the car consciously. I was driving it by a kind of instinct. Only I was in a different dimension. Some people find this stuff hard to swallow coming from a man like Senna. F1 has rules and Senna breaks them. It isn't meant to be a contact sport. 
Pross says Senna was always going on about God, or how well brought up he was. Pross can't get his head around it. How can someone who claims to be so religious and come from such good stock have such questionable morals? He didn't want to beat me, he wanted to destroy me. That's what Pross says. That was his motivation from the first day. It wasn't so much a matter of being tough as having his own rules. He believed he was in the right, always telling the truth. Whether Senna saw God or not, his faith surely has something to do with his frightening self-belief. As Senna puts it, I was not designed to be second or third. I was designed to win. And if you think God designed you to win, you do whatever it takes to make it happen. Otherwise, you're letting God down. The following season, things get toxic between Senna and Prost and childish. At the San Marino Grand Prix, Senna overtakes Prost just after a restart, which Prost says goes against the pre-race pact. Senna apologizes, but then says he only did so because the bosses told him to. I no longer want to have any business with him, says Prost. I appreciate honesty and he is not honest. The media love it. They whip it up into a simple tale of Prost good, Senna bad. When Senna spins off at Silverstone, the British fans cheer. Prost might be French, but he's a good old boy, playing by the rules and winning with a smile. Senna needs to win the penultimate race of the season in Japan, but he tangles with Prost. Senna takes the chequered flag, but is later disqualified meaning Prost wins the world title, his third one. And the final race of the season says a lot too. In torrential rain, Prost withdraws after one lap. Senna has a 30-second lead after 10 laps, but crashes trying to overtake a backmarker, someone he's a lap ahead of. Here's what Senna says next. I am supposed to be a lunatic, a danger man, breaking all the rules. But people have the wrong impression. I'm prepared to fight for my values. If those values mean a pathological need to dominate everything, Prost can do without them. He signs for Ferrari. It's 1990 and ahead of the Japanese Grand Prix, Senna leads Prost by just nine points in the championship. Senna pushes Prost off the track at the first corner, which means he wins his second world title. Prost isn't happy. Are you surprised? I'm not prepared to fight against irresponsible people who are not afraid of death, he says. The more Senna wins, the more friends he loses in the media. In one interview, three-time world champion Jackie Stewart compares him to Hitler. He can't understand why Senna keeps running into people. Senna responds, if you no longer go for a gap that exists, you are no longer a racing driver. Senna takes his third world title in 91, winning seven races. His performance in his home city of Sao Paulo on his 31st birthday is something like a miracle. In torrential rain with a faulty car on a hilly circuit with slow corners, Senna somehow finishes first. By the end of the race, only sixth gear was working. Senna doesn't just have to win for himself and for God. He has to win for his people. He knows that every time he races, 
tens of millions of Brazilians will be watching him on TV or listening to his progress on the radio. And if he wins, they might just forget all their troubles, if only for a few blessed minutes. That's the thing about Senna. He's actually a good guy, almost saintly. He gives a big chunk of his money away to Christian organizations, hospitals and homeless shelters. If people don't know about it, it's because he doesn't really talk about it. That habit he has of opening his Bible at a random page to find an answer to a difficult question. People scoff at it, but it works for him. Senna might act like a monk, but he's definitely not one. When another driver suggests Senna's gay, beautiful women come out of the woodwork all over the world. Gay, they say? Senna's the most sensual lover imaginable. In an interview with Playboy magazine, Senna hints he slept with his rival's wife. Alain Prost's replacement is an Austrian guy called Gerhard Berger. Senna doesn't see him as a threat, which is why he gets on with him. Berger even teaches Senna to have fun. They let off fire extinguishers in each other's hotel rooms, hide frogs in each other's beds. When Senna starts boasting about the indestructible briefcase he's just bought, Berger throws it out of a helicopter. But as far as most people are concerned, Senna's a riddle inside a rock. Impossible to get to, let alone understand. Keeps coming out with stuff like this. The harder I push, the more I find within myself. I am always looking for a different world to go into. What did the tabloid journalists do with that? Prost takes a year off in 92. But Senna has a new rival to get angry about. A German kid called Michael Schumacher. At the Brazilian Grand Prix, Senna tries his best not to let Schumacher pass. When Schumacher accuses him of playing games at the post-race press conference, Nigel Mansell's jaw almost hits the table. No one accuses Senna of playing games and gets away with it. In France, Schumacher shunts Senna out on the first lap. And during testing in Germany, Senna accuses Schumacher of dangerous driving and tries to start a fight in the pits. On top of all of that, Senna's car's a dud. He finishes the season in fourth, one place behind Schumacher. Not what he's designed to do. Senna's desperate to leave McLaren for rivals Williams because Williams keep winning. One big problem, they've already signed Prost. When Prost vetoes the signing of Senna, Senna gets personal, accuses Prost of cowardice. Some reckon 1993 is Senna's most impressive season, even though he finishes second behind Prost. It's what he's able to do with inferior equipment, persuading his car to do things no one thought possible, even its designers. Senna's first lap at Donington Park shows his rage to win in all its glory. He overtakes four cars to steal the lead, before treating the crowd to a driving masterclass. While his rivals are flailing in the wet, Senna is making his car stick. Cheek to cheek with the tarmac, he comes close to lapping the rest of the field and beats second place by over a minute. At the post-race press conference, Prost starts complaining about mechanical issues. Senna leans forward and says, perhaps you'd like to swap cars. 
Now, that's what you call charisma, bringing the house down without saying much. Frost retires after winning a fourth world title, which means Senna gets a drive for Williams. I have been waiting so long to start this new life, he says. Wiseheads think it's only a matter of time before he breaks the record of five world title wins set by Argentina's Juan Manuel Fangio back in the 50s. But Senna's joy doesn't last long. Because of new rules on technology, his car doesn't have the same advantages, and it's horrible to drive, as are most of the cars. Senna tells a reporter, it's going to be a season with lots of accidents. We'll be lucky if something really serious doesn't happen. Schumacher, who Senna calls the German, wins the first two races of the 1994 season. People close to Senna say he's feeling the pressure, not only is his car a grave disappointment, he suspects Schumacher's team are cheating, hiding banned technology. He also has personal problems. His family don't think his new girlfriend is good enough for him. The San Marino Grand Prix is carnage from the start. Brazilian driver Rubens Barrichello hits a curb, goes flying, and lands upside down. Somehow, he escapes with a broken nose and arm. The first race Barrichello sees after regaining consciousness is Senna's. Senna doesn't seem to have any regard for his own safety, but he's alive to the dangers of motor racing. Whenever there's a bad accident, he always seems to be there, and straight afterwards, he usually drives like a demon. In 1990, Irish driver Martin Donnelly crashed in Spain. It was a sickening sight, legs and arms pointing in wrong directions, surrounded by debris. Senna was first on the scene again, looking, as one journalist put it, like someone who has just seen his own shadow. Then he went back out and beat his time by a second, as if he was getting his own back on the circuit. After leaving Barrichello's bedside, Senna recalls the fastest time of the weekend to qualify in pole for the 65th time. Senna's always able to drive through problems, whether it's a dodgy gearbox or the near death of a rival. But things get worse. The following day, Austrian driver Roland Rassenberger hits a wall at 200 miles an hour. When he hears the news, Senna commandeers a course car and races to the medical centre, where he discovers Rassenberger wasn't as lucky as Barrichello. He's the first driver to die at a Grand Prix in 12 years. Senna sobs on the shoulder of F1's medical chief, Sid Watkins. When Watkins suggests he quits racing and takes up fishing instead, Senna replies, there are certain things over which we have no control. I cannot quit. I have to go on. This is what Senna meant when he said nothing had come easy. He hadn't forgotten his privileged upbringing. It was a reference to his mental struggle.
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. On the morning of the race, the 1st of May, 1994, there's a driver's briefing. During a minute's silence for Ratzenberger, Senna weeps. Afterwards, Senna rounds up a few of his rivals and suggests they meet before the next race in Monaco to discuss safety. When a reporter asks why he hasn't complained to Formula One bosses, Senna replies, I have opened my big mouth too often. People think Senna is acting weird, distant, not quite there, hardly surprising given what happened the day before. People think Senna puts his helmet on differently before climbing into his car. That's the romance. People can't just accept something happened to him. It must have been something mystical. There's a crash at the start, which brings out the safety car. After the restart, and once the debris has been cleared, Senna puts the hammer down, clocking a scarily quick lap time with a full tank and on cold tires. Sid Watkins turns to a colleague and says, there's going to be a fucking awful accident in a minute. Schumacher is trailing Senna in second place. He thinks Senna's car is acting nervous, an unwilling dance partner, getting all the steps wrong. At 2.17, Senna approaches Tamburello Corner, spears straight ahead and crashes almost sideways into a concrete wall. His car disintegrates before what's left of it spins 180 degrees and comes to rest on the edge of the track. Hundreds of millions of viewers expect Senna to pop his seatbelt, pull off his gloves and jump out of the cockpit. They think they've seen worse, but that famous yellow helmet doesn't move. For about a minute, Senna stays still in the cockpit while cars stream past and marshals wait for the medical team to arrive. A few thousand miles away in Argentina, an 82-year-old Juan Manuel Frangio switches off his TV. He already knows what others haven't considered. Sid Watkins knows his mate is dead as soon as he removes his helmet just by looking into his eyes. But there's procedure to follow and the race goes ahead. Standing on top of the podium, Schumacher is in the dark, as are most people. Not until 6.40, two hours and 20 minutes after Schumacher took the checkered flag, does a doctor at the hospital announce that Ayrton Senna has passed away. The official time of death is 2.17, meaning Senna was killed instantly. Nurses found an Austrian flag hidden in the sleeve of his overalls. 
Senna planned to fly it during his victory lap in memory of Ratzenberger. The president of Brazil declares three days of mourning. Something like three million people gather for his funeral in Sao Paulo. Young and old, rich and poor. The Los Angeles Times says, it was as though Senna had left behind not only a grief-stricken family and a desolate girlfriend, but 150 million orphans. It's 24 years since Brazil has won the Football World Cup. Since then, Brazilians have only come out in their thousands to demonstrate against crooked politicians. Yes, Senna was rich beyond their wildest imaginations, but at least he was honest. At least he made them proud to be Brazilian. It's eventually decided Senna's death was caused by a faulty steering column. No one was prosecuted because legal proceedings went on for too long. But at least it wasn't Senna's fault. At least God didn't make a mistake. Formula One is less dangerous now. Cars are safer. Tracks have been redesigned. But part of the sport's soul died with Senna. F1 was never just meant to be about the speed and the technology. It was also meant to be about the risk and the peril. That's why these men raced cars and why people watched them. Where's the heroism in drivers being coached from the sidelines by engineers because their cars are so complicated? Where's the jeopardy in drivers not being punished for mistakes? As one modern F1 driver put it, you have to live with the fact you might die or you might as well play computer games. Even Lewis Hamilton, winner of seven world titles, thinks F1 is boring nowadays. After winning the 2019 French Grand Prix from pole position, he apologized to fans. When reporters asked the guy who finished second why he was so far behind, he said he was saving his tires. For what, you might ask? Ayrton Senna never played at anything. He was the apex of what motor racing was meant to be. A driver who drove with furious passion, always went for the gap, as was his right, as racing drivers should do, who held his car in a sensuous embrace and turned it into a living thing, who was glamorous, otherworldly, said what he wanted, pissed people off and created scenes. Senna was the last gasp of another age. Before the old flying circus was suffocated by corporate sterility. Where's the poetry now? As Senna's great rival, Alain Prost, put it, even as it turned out, Senna's was a fantastic story. I think we're missing a little of that today. Don't you think? This episode of Death of a Sports Star was written by Ben Durs and performed by me, 
Elroy Spoonface Powell's Spoon the Voice Guy. It was edited by Charlie Frost. The music we used is from our partner's BMG Production Music. For research, we read Richard Williams' classic book, The Death of Ayrton Senna, and watched Asif Kapadia's award-winning documentary, Senna. We also read articles in The Telegraph, The Guardian, The Independent, and The Los Angeles Times, as well as the archives of Autosport, Motorsport, F1 Chronicle, Sports Illustrated, and BBC Sport. If you want another episode, listen to the one about Flojo, the fastest woman in history. And if you're a music fan, check out our Death of a Rock Star series, where you'll find episodes about Amy Winehouse, Prince, and Freddie Mercury. We'll have a new Sports Star episode on Monday. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today. Get ready, race fans, because the ultimate NASCAR experience is about to hit the airwaves. Welcome to Pit Pass NASCAR, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart-pounding world of NASCAR racing. Join us each week as we bring you closer to the NASCAR action with exclusive interviews and all the news and rumors you need with your favorite drivers, team members, and industry insiders. So whether you're a fan of super speedways, short ovals, or road racing, or you've just watched Talladega Nights, Pit Pass NASCAR is the podcast you've been waiting for. Get ready to fuel your passion for NASCAR like never before. Subscribe now to Pit Pass NASCAR on your favorite podcast platform or head to evergreenpodcast.com and get ready to join us. Launching in the fall on Evergreen Podcast Network. Follow us on social media at pitpass underscore NASCAR to stay up to date with everything you need to know about the podcast. Pit Pass Moto, sponsored by Moto America, is the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. From candid interviews with the top names in racing to providing insights into the trends and trendsetters driving the motorcycle industry, we have you covered. New episodes are available every Thursday at pitpassmoto.com and on your favorite podcast app. Ride on!